For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Welcome back to Hertel. Okay, this is going to be fun. We're going to talk a little economics. We're going to go down to Arkansas, University of Central Arkansas. That's in Conway. Just go north on 40 up from Little Rock Spell. Just kind of veer to the left real subtle-like. You'll come right to it. Dr. Jeremy Horpendahl, another of our Young Voices contributor and economist. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. How are you, Andrew? I really appreciate the time. Um, I've got to ask you, though, before we get into kind of, because, you know, economists, it's it's a little wonky. It's a little nerdy. It's a lot of numbers and stuff. Explain to me Homer Simpson buying a home in the 90s and how that compares to today, because I think that's actually kind of a fun way to address some of the topics we're getting into today. Yeah, absolutely. So I I wrote a a little blog post about this a month or two ago um, uh, in response to a lot of people uh, on Twitter and and Reddit uh, saying that, well, the Simpsons could afford a house in the 90s, but now a typical family, you know, with one earner could not. So, and they would just, you know, show a picture of the Simpsons house. You know, here's what a family used to be able to afford. So I went through the data and said, you know, there's data that uh, uh, the Census Bureau collects every year on what does a family with one earner earn? What's the median price of a home? So I just compared the two over time. And when you do that comparison, uh, actually the amount of your income you would have to spend on a home today uh, or at least with the most recent data up through 2020, maybe it's a little different today as prices have gone way up, but at least you know, through most of the time period the Simpsons has been on the air, uh, the, the amount of someone's income you would need to, to buy a home has been going down over time. If you take into account not only the, the price of the home, but also interest rates and so on. Um, so uh, just you know, something economists like to do, let's, let's, here's, a, here's a claim someone makes about the world. Let's look and dig into the data and see if that matches up with, with the reality from the best data we have. See, this comes to something that when we, when we have economists on or we're talking economics on the program, we keep coming back to this. Isn't one of the real big problems with this is everybody's perception of what the economy is is so different. Because like the Simpsons, even underneath all the silliness, that's a very stereotypical, it's a suburban two-story house, got a husband, wife, two kids. That's a very specific economic social class. So even in something like the Simpsons, there's a perspective bias there when you start talking about, well, they could do that and I can't. How much of the problem in our discourse on economics is that we just don't deal with, we have this big diverse country, which means we have a very diverse economy with a lot of different people in a lot of different situations. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think you need to know that when you're looking at any data or numbers, what does it actually mean? So just to give you one example, uh, there's a, a a number called the median household income. If you follow economic data, you see this all the time. You know, median household income, how's it changed over time? Well, when you, when you hear household, you probably think of a family like the Simpsons, right? Married couple, maybe one of them is working, a few kids. 
but a household includes uh, lots of other situations, such as any two people living together that are unmarried. So two college roommates are a household. Uh, you know, a, a family with eight kids is a household. So, you know, when we look at a number like that, it's, it's really important to give it the context so we can see, you know, what are we talking about? And then if we want to make a comparison to say, how is a family of, of this you know, structure doing, how are they doing compared to a similar family in the past? We've got to try to zero in on the best data to make that comparison, which isn't always easy. easy. Sometimes that data might not exist, but uh, that, that's what we try to do as economists is, is hopefully find the best data. Yeah. And one of those data sets, since you just brought it up, let's talk about it for a second. One of those data sets that are changing is we, we tend to do generational bias when we talk about data sets like that, because every, everybody wants to talk about millennials. Everybody wants to talk about boomers. Mm-hmm. And of course, the boomers aging out is a huge part of the economy right now. Uh, and the millennials moving into their 40s now. But something that we've been seeing in a lot of reporting, I don't know if it's showing up in the data yet, but we're kind of starting to see more multi-generational homes and things like that, or households, I should say, multi-generational households, those sorts of things have a lot of economic uh, ripple effects, don't they, when people start doing those sorts of things instead of just your traditional, oh, you're 20, go to college, get married, go buy a house. Yeah, absolutely. The, the you know, and type of family, if you think about multi-generational, that could mean many things, right? One thing it might mean is that, well, maybe grandma is living with you, and that means you don't have to pay for daycare because grandma can do that. Or multi-generational might mean you have a, an elderly parent who needs a lot of care, uh, in which case that'll be a big burden on the home. So, you know, these types of things are, are something which has always exist, but I think there's a lot more households of this nature than in the past. So we always need to make sure that we know what we're looking at. And, you know, certainly in some of those situations where you have a multi-generational household, that might mean that it's, it's harder to make ends meet. In other cases, it might mean it's easier. Again, maybe... An elderly parent is taking care of the kids. Maybe they're actually still working and they're contributing to the household income. So when we look at data, we want to know, you know, how many people are in the household. We want to at least adjust for, adjust for that. How many earners are in the household, right? All these things uh, can, can drastically alter both how much income they have as well as what their expenses are, which is ultimately what we really want to think about. Yeah, and uh, J- Dr. Jeremy Horpendahl joining us on Herd Tell. Uh, as you're well aware, I'm sure, because you teach students, uh, a lot of people don't really pay attention to economics, but one economic number they always pay attention to, you just mentioned it, when they consume goods, when they have to pay for goods, that means inflation, that means gas prices. Those are the two things that consistently break through. Uh, just turn the noise down for us for a minute. What are you looking at when you look at the buzzwords of inflation and gas prices in the social media realm or the news realm? What are you looking at and what are you trying to tell people like, okay, that's, that's the term and yes, this is happening, but here's what we actually need to be dealing with. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I mean, there's obviously a lot of talk about inflation right now. Everyone's feeling it in lots of different ways. Uh, when you see a number such as the consumer price index, which is the most commonly used measure of inflation that is used uh, out there, both in the media and often by economists as well. Uh, you know, a number like that, I think, is, is useful as a, as a first cut at, you know, how are things right now? How might inflation now compared to a year ago or two years ago or 10 years ago? Uh, but I think it's always useful to kind of drill down into that number and to see what, what's causing it, right? So if the price of, you know, we say that the, the consumer price index is up 8.5% or so over the past year, you know, what does that mean? Does that mean everything's up 8.5%? Well, no, it does not. Uh, some things are up more than that, right? If you look at the price of a lot of different kinds of meats, they're up 15 to 20%. Uh, but other things might be going up not quite as fast. So 
if we're thinking about how does inflation affect a typical person or a typical household, uh, we need to know what sorts of things uh, is that household consuming? And everyone doesn't have the same consumption pattern, right? If we look at, say, you know, my industry, college tuition, right? This is a number of people follow a lot. Uh, well, most people aren't paying college tuition for, you know, 40 years, right? People are paying college tuition for five or six years, or if they go to grad school, maybe up to 10 years. They might be paying off the student loans from those, you know, over a longer period of time. Uh, but for most people, you know, what happened to the price of college tuition last month is not really relevant to, to their budget, right? So we want to know what sorts of numbers are relevant. Uh, certainly the price of housing is relevant, right? For most households, this is going to be 20, 30, or 40% of their budget is going to go to housing. Again, housing is so varied across this country, both in how much it costs and how much it's increasing, right? Some, some markets are really hot now and prices might be up 40 or 50% compared to before the pandemic. Others have seen more mild increases, but we want to know how is that affecting people's budgets? How does that relate to, importantly, how much have their wages gone up? This is the other important thing to remember about inflation is that, well, yes, prices are going up, but if your wages are going up just as much, it's not as much of a, of a, of a burden on you. Uh, but if your wages aren't going up as fast as inflation, that's what really matters to you, right? I mean, let's say inflation was 100% every year. Now, that would seem crazy and a totally different reality from where we are now. But if your wages were going up 200% every year, uh, for you as a worker who's, who's seeing those wage increases, 100% inflation is no big deal if your wages are doing better than that. But even at just you know, a mild rate of inflation, 5%, uh, if your wages are only going up 1%, then that really does hurt you. So we need to compare these two things and we need to think about how does it uh, look for whatever type of household we want to analyze, whether it's you know, millennials, they're just kind of getting into the workforce, buying their first home, whether it's the boomers who are just getting into retirement or the next generation, Gen Z or whatever we're going to eventually call them, you know, that are, that are just graduating from college. You know, I teach college and, and we just had our graduation on Saturday and you've got a couple thousand kids that are now being kind of dumped into the workforce. You know, how are they going to do? You know, we want to know all the prices that matter to each of those different types of, of households is very different. So one number like the CPI is, is a useful one to look at, but it should never be kind of the final word of what's going on with inflation. Yeah, and another one of those numbers, uh, Dr. Jeremy Horvathal, an economist joining us on Hertel, another one of those numbers that it gets a lot of play in the media, but it affects people greatly. It really helps some folks. It's really going to hurt other folks. Uh, talk about interest rates for just a second, because that's a number some people are going to love that it's going up. I know a lot of economists have been almost screaming that it needs to go up, but that also greatly affects a lot of people in very, very real day-to-day, -day, almost week-to-week, -week, every paycheck kind of ways, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So when we talk about interest rates, we always have to realize just like prices, there are lots of different interest rates, right? So there's an interest rate uh, that you might earn from a savings account. Now that's very low today. There's interest rates you're going to pay, such as an interest rate uh, on buying a new house, right? If you buy a new house today, the interest rate you're going to pay is very much higher than it would have been if you bought a house a year ago. Uh, but there's also interest rates uh, that the Federal Reserve Bank is going to loan money to banks at, sometimes on a very short-term basis. Uh, so that's, that's actually a key interest rate, what the Federal Reserve Bank is doing uh, with the interest rate that they are going to be setting in markets for banks, essentially lending money to each other. As that interest rate changes, they increase that interest rate, that's going to have effects that are going to go across the economy. Right? So as the Fed starts raising interest rates that they set, that's going to affect things like mortgage rates, and it's going to affect things like the, how much you're going to be paid on a savings account. 
Um, so we need to think about, you know, why is the Fed doing this, right? And as you said, why are some economists finally cheering that they're doing this? Uh, the reason for that is one of the main policy tools the Federal Reserve Bank has to get inflation down, now that inflation is kind of out of control, uh, is to raise that interest rate. That's one of the main ways they have of impacting the economy. Uh, it's not the only way they have, and there's, there's other things Congress could potentially do, but as far as the Federal Reserve Bank, that's the main thing they're going to do uh, to try to both, you know, when you're in a slow economy, they're going to lower that interest rate to try to speed up the economy in a sense. Um, but when prices start going up, they're going to then raise that interest rate to try to slow down the rate of money growth, which then should slow down uh, how much prices are going up. Uh, but there's, it's a very, you know, kind of challenging thing to do. There's a kind of a long lag between when they change interest rates and when it'll actually affect prices. It's not an instantaneous thing, even though it might instantaneously affect mortgage rates. Um, so these two things, you know, you mentioned interest rates, it's very much connected to the prices we were just talking about earlier. Yeah, talking to Dr. Jeremy Horpendahl, an economist out at the University of Central Arkansas in beautiful Conway, Arkansas. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to drill down on one of those prices, gas prices, and some things that have been going on both in the administrative and in the social uh, discussion field about how those things work. Also want to talk to him about those college kids getting ready to come out because we do that every year and we don't talk about them enough. More economics with our friend, Dr. Jeremy Horpendahl, right after this on Herd Tech. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by granger for the ones who get it done uh, welcome back to Hertel. we are talking economics our friend, Dr. Jeremy Horpendahl is going to explain some of this big number, big mass stuff to me like I'm five, so even I can understand it. Uh, here's one that folks get wrong a lot, even though they're invested in it because it hits them directly daily. Gas prices, you've been doing some writing about this in Real Clear uh, Policy. Real quick, though, just so we have our nomenclature right, we talk about it, but break it down. What actually affects gas prices? Why is that what we call a lagging indicator? No, it doesn't just what happened today doesn't show up at the pump tomorrow. This is stuff from six months ago, year ago, 18 months ago. Just real quick in a nutshell so that we have the right terminology. What is gas prices actually reflecting? Yeah, that's, that's a really important thing to think about, right? Like, where does this number come from? We see it at the pump, right? We don't, and not just at the pump, we see it as we drive by a gas station, right? It's posted everywhere, right? So everyone's very keenly aware of this, and it certainly affects people's budgets. Um, you know, economists, of course, love to talk about supply and demand, right? And I think that both of those factors are important here. Uh, number one is there is coming out of the pandemic, as, as most countries are now, uh, there's a huge increase in demand for all sorts of things, but especially for traveling, right? Both by car, uh, by airplane. Uh, and those are two industries which are gonna be purchasing a lot of gasoline. It's necessary for them uh, to 
uh, have those uh, moving forward, of course. So what that means is that part of what's going on uh, is that people are just wanting to buy a lot more. But that's also hitting up to the other half of it that economists like to talk about, and that is the supply, right? So there's the supply of gasoline, uh, which is certainly being affected by the events in Ukraine, uh, as well as countries reacting to that, to that war by uh, either embargoing Russian imports or other things related to that. So that's certainly a part of it. But gas prices had been going up uh, long before that began, uh, going up throughout most of, of last year of 2021. Uh, so what other factors might there be? And here's where I think the, the, the essay you mentioned I wrote for Real Clear Policy, really, I tried to explain this in, in, in a pretty simple way, uh, is that you know, when you have this increase in demand, uh, what we would normally expect for, for most markets is an increase in supply, right? As people demand more, the price goes up, and then there should be more oil put on the market, which eventually turns into more gasoline, and the prices then should come down, we should get back to some sort of equilibrium uh, as that happens. But this doesn't happen instantaneously, right? You can't instantly just suddenly find more oil or, or create more gasoline. There's a long production process that's involved in both extracting the oil, finding new oil. Certainly when the price of oil goes up, uh, there are reserves of oil that weren't profitable to extract before that now are. Uh, but again, there's a, there's a time lag. So what's been kind of building up in the you know, past year as we've been coming out of, of the pandemic in the US and, and other countries are as well, is that we've had a big increase in demand, uh, but the, the supply side takes a long time to catch up. And then in the middle of that is when you have the Ukraine war coming, on, uh, coming online. And then that just kind of really just, just toppled it over, right? There's uh, wherever we'd be getting the new supply from, there's now just less oil available in the entire global market. And so that just really uh, then kind of you know, right in February and March, prices just started skyrocketing, right? I think in a few weeks, prices at the pump went up by a dollar a gallon, and it was just a really dramatic increase in a short amount of time. But that was the buildup of a lot of things which have been happening in this very weird economy we have right now, post-pandemic or kind of still in the pandemic, that, uh, that, that all that's kind of coming together. And then consumers end up seeing it at the pump, right? So I think maybe next we'll talk about, you know, what is there anything we can do about that, right? There's a lot of a lot of people suggesting things we can do, but that's that's kind of the, the basics of you know what's what I think is going on with that market right now. Yeah, and you start talking about things like price control. We've seen some op-eds, we see some talking heads discussing it. We've even heard it from some of the White House staff folks. Um, not in that terminology, but that's what they're talking about when they're talking about manipulating the price. Here's the problem. Uh, we've seen this movie. We know about the gas shortages in the 70s. That got hung around Carter's neck. But the part of that story folks don't talk about is a lot of the mess that Carter was dealing with was actually Nixon instituted price controls on a whole bunch of stuff before him in the 60s. We have a history of this in the United States of America at, with price controls. You're the economist. You explained it to me that history is not a good one, correct? Yeah, that's right. So like you said, there have been some people that have been saying that, well, one thing we could do perhaps in some markets is institute price controls of various sorts to try to bring down certain prices like gasoline. Uh, the problem with that is that doesn't solve any of the problems. So all the problems I mentioned that are causing prices to go up, the price control doesn't solve any of those problems. So if we were to put in a, you know, Congress were to you know, wake up today and pass a law saying that the most you can charge for gasoline is whatever it was a year ago, right? Realizing different markets are different prices. Arkansas is different from California. Uh, but, uh, you know, if Congress said you got to charge the prices that they existed a year ago, what would that mean? 
Well, none of the underlying reality has changed about more people wanting gasoline, about the situation in Ukraine. Uh, what you're essentially doing is trying to mask the problem. But what that then creates is an additional problem, uh, which is, like you mentioned, the 70s, you get shortages of goods like gasoline, uh, meaning that there just is not enough available. Uh, what that price rising does, right, an important part of prices rising from an economist's perspective, is to make it so that uh, people are going to use less where they can. Now, of course, we can never cut back 100%, but use less where we can. Um, and it's going to try to get more oil on the market. Uh, if you put a cap on that, whether it's the retail price of gasoline, whether it's the price of oil, what that means is you're going to screw up the market trying to react to this, right? You're not going to tell consumers to stop using it, which is what the higher price tells consumers to do. And you're not going to encourage more producers to put more oil or gasoline on the market. And you're going to create this additional problem of shortages, uh, which would mean what we would see at the pump is not high prices, but what we would see is long lines. We would see people lined up uh, because there's stations run out of gasoline and you don't want to not have gasoline. I mean, imagine today, you know, the challenge with electric cars is doing a cross-country trip, right? For short trips, electric cars are actually really good, but am I going to find a charging station if I'm trying to do a 400-mile trip? Uh, if you have shortages of gasoline, it's actually the same problem. You know, am I going to find a gas station on my route that has gasoline uh, and I'm able to fill up with? Uh, that's a huge uncertainty. If we have these shortages happening, it causes uh, a lot of problems with uh, uh, that market and doesn't solve that underlying reality. Let's let's just touch on that real quick, though. Um, when you talk about underlying reality, you wrote about it when you wrote about it in your piece that inflation is a messenger. We know all the stimulus we've done. We're we're all let's just be adults here. We all know that America's uh, fiscal house hasn't been in order at the government level for some time now. Uh, but having given all that, you still say inflation is the messenger for all this. What did you mean by that? Yeah, so I think uh, a lot of the problems of inflation are due to two things, which are clo two closely related things. Uh, one is in the early response to to the pandemic. The Federal Reserve printed a lot of money, and a lot of that money was used to give to households to try to help them out. Uh, but what that meant is you have now all this new demand coming online, and a lot of people saved that money and are now starting to spend it. Um, that's the reality. Now, whether we thought that was a good idea or not, uh, you know, back in March and April of 2020, uh, that reality exists. Right? The new money has been printed. Uh, the new money has been given to households, and they're now starting to spend it. Um, and and the reality that it creates is this high rate of inflation. Um, and so there's no way to kind of put that genie back in the bottle. Uh, the Federal Reserve now is slowly trying to do what they can to put the genie back in the bottle, which is to raise interest rates and do a few other things. Uh, but uh, that's not something they can do instantaneously. But you absolutely cannot put the genie back in the bottle of consumers having more money, uh, both due to the stimulus, but also just having not spent a lot of money in 2020 of having saved money and now people are coming out and spending it, and that's going to affect prices. It's going to affect the price of gasoline. It's going to affect the price of housing. Uh, it's going to affect the price of groceries as people start to spend all this money and feel more confident about their own economic situation. And uh, that is the reality. Inflation is just telling us that that's the reality. And so anything like a price control to try to stop inflation is just going to be, as I think I said, shooting the messenger. Uh, it's going to be masking what, what is the reality. So uh, tell us, those folks like us who don't have the background on it and can't read all those fancy tables and charts and such, 
what should we be watching for in the news cycle coming up? We know inflation is out there. We know the interest rates are going to go up a couple times over the summer, probably. We know we have an election year, so there's going to be more buzzwords than probably policy. What should the average person be listening for, both from the politicians and from the policy people, going forward in the next couple of months that should perk their ears up when it comes to the economy? Yeah, I think it's it's challenging for someone out there. With, there's numbers that come out every week, right? Here's some new data. Here's some new data. Certainly, we want to be watching that consumer price index I mentioned, and that hopefully that will start slowing down soon. That'll be that'll be an indication that what the Federal Reserve is doing is actually having an effect. Uh, if that rate of price increase starts slowing down, um, there are other. If we want to get into a little bit of the weeds, there are some other measures of inflation. Uh, one that I like and the Fed likes as well is called the the uh, the PCE. Uh, in particular, one, uh, the, which is the personal consumption expenditures price index. It's similar to the CPI, but it's a little different. And importantly, there's a measure of it that takes out the, the extremes, the high and the low prices, and just looks at those in the middle. Yeah, so I think what the average family should look for as, as the data comes out, there's new data that's coming out every week. We'll get some new inflation data pretty soon. There'll be inflation data every month. Certainly, want, we want to watch that inflation number to see if that starts to slow down. Uh, right. If the Federal Reserve, what they're trying to do to slow down the rate of growth of money and slow down the economy, that's intended to lower prices. So hopefully soon we should start seeing that have an effect. And the consumer price index, when that's released every month, that that shouldn't be increasing as fast. Uh, but there are other measures of inflation that people might look to. Uh, the Federal Reserve Bank actually doesn't look at the CPI very closely. They look at another one called the personal consumption expenditures. They call it the PCE. Uh, it's a little bit different, but but that's another one that we'll want to watch to see if that's slowing down. Uh, but certainly we also want, the other thing we want to be paying attention to, and I think the average person should think about, is the potential downside of the Fed trying to bring inflation under control is it could create an economic downturn. It could create more unemployment. It could make us be in a recession. This is their, This is the danger of doing this and doing it too quickly. So I think that's, you know, Certainly in someone's own life, they're going to know, you know, if they've lost their job. But I think is, if we're trying to watch what's going on with the overall economy, uh, we've had very strong job growth over the past year and a half. Uh, you know, as we take off the restrictions during the pandemic, as people start spending money, we've had very strong job growth. If that starts to slow down, uh, that is a worry that we that the Fed is perhaps overcorrected. I don't think they've done it quite yet, but if we watch over the next six months or so, uh, you know, watch those two numbers, right? Is unemployment or employment growth slowing down? And are we getting prices under control? Uh, the big worry is that what they're doing won't stop the prices from going up and it will slow down the economy. That would be the worst of all worlds. That's again, getting back to the 1970s, what we call stagflation. And sometimes people have been throwing that word around now too, but stagflation means that you have the worst of all worlds, which is high inflation, and you have a poorly performing economy in terms of employment and in terms of economic growth. Uh, we're not there yet. Uh, we've still had pretty good economic growth. The first quarter didn't look so good. Uh, so people are now starting to worry uh, as the Fed is trying to slow down the inflation, are they going to create a recession on top of that? Um, which, which is absolutely a possibility. Yeah, Dr. Jeremy Horpendahl, great stuff today. Really appreciate your insight. Uh, we're going to have you back, but until we get you back on Hertel again, let folks know where they can follow you, your social media, your writing in a couple different places. Uh, let them know how they can get to Conway, Arkansas, if they want to come a visit in. 
especially for football season. It's a darn fine, nice place, small college campus, taking a football game. We've done that a time or two over the years. Let folks know where they can follow you until we see you again, my friend. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on, Andrew. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. Um, I'm pretty active on there trying to post data. Um, uh, so you can find me. My handle is J-M-H-O-R-P. That's my Twitter handle. Uh, I also blog for a blog called economistwritingeveryday.com. Uh, we got seven economists that write for that, and we each write once a week. So there's some fresh content every day. I write on Wednesdays, um, but all the economists who write for that are great and have a lot of different, different perspectives on the economy. So check out economistwritingeveryday.com. And I think those are, the, those are the main places you can find me. I'll, anywhere else I am, I'll link to from my Twitter. <laughs> well, and uh, we always appreciate uh, folks from the Young Voices Stable. They always have great people. And you are one of them, sir. We'll definitely have you back. Thank you so much for the time today. And uh, appreciate your time. Talk to you again soon. Okay. Thank you for all the great questions. Have a good yes, day. Yes, sir. Thank you. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.